Welcome to The Ziggler Show. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. This is our interview show. You are overwhelmed. You have too much to do. So I have a question for you. If you could wave a magic wand, would you rather get more done or just have less to do? Well, most productivity messages generally focus on getting efficient to get more done, but the greats of our present day and history don't do more. They figure out ways to spend more time doing just what they can do, their art in essence. So Michael Hyatt joins us on The Ziggler Show for the third time. He's our first guest to do so. His new book is titled Free to Focus, Achieve More by Doing Less. But let me give you the punchline here. A primary problem for most of us is we take on too much and don't eliminate, automate, or delegate enough other stuff. We spend time doing tasks that relegate us to low-paid hourly workers. And why? Well, I asked Michael this. He kind of stepped on my own toes because he stated some truths that are relevant to me. We often don't delegate or automate or eliminate. We think we can do it. We should do it. And we think that, Hey, in the time it takes to teach somebody else, we could do it ourselves, or I can just do it best. Well, if we accept that we're plateaued in what we can do. And there we sit forever under maximized. I mean, friend, this is a convicting and compelling message from it. You will do one of two things, either cut down on things you don't have to do again. They may need to get done, but you do you have to do them? That's the question. And then spend more time on the important things that you do best, your art. Or you'll decide to change nothing and anchor your progress to where you are now. And since I know you won't do the latter, then there's nothing more important than listening to and digesting this message. If you don't know Michael, he's one of the most influential voices in business today. He's a best-selling author, one of the most successful bloggers ever. And in truth, he is a primary leader of leaders. He's an influencer of influencers. It's unreal how many of the people we interview here on the show look to Michael for mentorship. They cite him. So go find out more and check out his new book, Free to Focus at michaelhyatt.com, which as of the recording right now of this show, it's still 20 days till the book is officially for sale. It's already in the top five to 30 in all book categories in Amazon. I think it's about number 25 in books overall, and you can't even get it yet. You can just pre-order it. Uh, hopefully, I think by the time this this post, you might be able to get it or just pre-order it. It'll sell in a few days. So uh, I would get yours now. Hey, a big thanks to all of you who are leaving great reviews in iTunes for The Ziggler Show and who are checking yes on the newest reviews that they were helpful. It's helping people see those right off the bat. And if you'll do that, let me know on Facebook. Send me a message with your username after leaving a review. I'll send you a free copy of Zig and Tom Ziggler's book, Born to Win. All right, folks, here I bring you Michael Hyatt and a message that will leave you free to focus. Well, Michael, this is my third interview with you. The first person in all these years I have done a third interview with. So thanks for continuing to put out such great content so that it requires me to have you back on the show again. Well, I'm surprised and honored that you would have me on for a third time. So thank you for that. Absolutely. I can't deny the great, the great content. I mean, this book, uh, focus is one that speaks to me. It steps on my toes. Uh, it's a little irritating in some parts, all in places <laughs> that I need to be irritated. And, you know, I know that the book didn't come from just a great brainstorming session on, hey, what would be a good topic? That this comes from your own personal 
crucible and story of the need of, and maybe the, uh, the pains of the lack, a lack of having this in your own life. Let's start off with giving us a little bit of background. Yeah. So I've been kind of a productivity geek since college. I've been always looking for the edge, you know, a hack, something that'll give me an advantage so that I can be more efficient and more productive. But one of the things I discovered back in about 2000 or so, when the Getting Things Done book came out, and I was a super advocate of that book, a book by David Allen, it was a best-selling book, um, is that the things I was trying to do to become more productive almost became a full-time job. You know, there was, I was spending so much time managing my list, trying to find the right hacks, you know, the quest for the perfect thing, that I was not really being productive so much as I was pursuing productive productivity as an end in itself. And I woke up about probably eight years ago, especially with the advent of social media and all the stuff that competes for our attention and realized that the smartphone wasn't making me smarter, yeah. that uh, the task apps that I was employing weren't actually doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I needed to focus. I needed something that would truly allow me to be productive as a means to a greater end, which for me was freedom. And so this really came out of the crucible, my own experience and my own quest for greater freedom and for productivity that led to that. It's interesting to hear you say that because I get to admit, I'm not a detailed guy, admittedly, that's not my personality profile. And I struggle somewhat with some of the productivity apps like that, even from a team standpoint of trying to harness and get all our folks on the same page. And there's, you know, we've, we do utilize teamwork at Basecamp and Podio and all these things. I have a new project that came up. It's on a smaller side, smaller team. And I said, folks, I just, I, I'm not, I won't end up engaging. We're going to use an Excel spreadsheet, which sounds, <laughs> I'm shamed by that, but yeah, I agree. You can end up spending so much time in that. Well, so on that aspect of productivity, um, you know, as I dug into your message, of course, the title is focus, but then real quick, you cite, this is an issue, a step towards better productivity, but then it's literally page 36. Of course, now I've got the uh, advanced copy. It may have changed letter somewhere around there. You have in highlight on the left side and it brought it home to me. Productivity should free you to pursue what's most important to you. And that's what hooked me on your message here because it was the why. Thank goodness to Simon Sinek and him bringing that to all of our attention, but the why. And I'm wondering as you have been living this out yourself with your team uh, and with other people, how often do you experience people get the mechanics of what you're talking about here, a focus on productivity, but it's somewhat impotent because they don't understand their end goal. That's right. And that's where the book starts. And I think that's one of the things that really makes it different. We have to have a clear vision for what we're after. And so, you know, productivity historically, and you read this in in the book, Free to Focus, but um, historically, it was sort of the domain of efficiency experts trying to shave a little bit of time off a factory production uh, line so they could decrease costs and increase profit, right? Well, that served us in the age of factories, but the problem is we don't make widgets. Most of us are knowledge workers today. And so then people said, well, I can be more successful. I can get that edge, the thing I was uh, talking about. But the thing I'm after and the thing I advocate in the book, Free to Focus, is freedom. You know, the freedom to focus on what matters most without distraction the freedom to be fully present with the people that matter most to you so that when I'm at work, I'm not thinking about some problem in my home that's unresolved or when I'm out with my family, I'm not thinking about some work thing that needs to be uh, to be dealt with. 
I want the freedom also to focus on the work, you know, itself. So that when I'm doing work, I'm not distracted by Facebook or Instagram or interruptions from my coworkers, but I'm really able to focus on the work that, that moves the needle. And then finally, I want the freedom to be spontaneous. And I think there's a tendency if we're not careful, especially for overachievers to program every moment of their life. And so for me, when the grandkids come over, I want to be able to have the, the margin to stop what I'm doing, to go play with the kids and not feel like, you know, uh, anxious because I'm wasting time that I could be working. Okay. You pulled out a couple of things there. And one that I am going to give to folks because one it's profound. And because it was one of the best comic relief sessions that I had in the past week it was out of your book. And you cited the article in, uh, it was put out by onion man on cusp of having fun suddenly remembers every single one of his responsibilities. Michael, I posted that in my family's text, my core family's text. And I got zingers back from my kids. Daddy, that is you. Uh, so thanks for that. <laughs> that was, Sorry about that. That, that was brilliant. I did it to my, my core family and then my extended. So your buddy, my dad, Dan Miller, uh, they got it as well. So we all had a good laugh out of that one as well. Okay, but you bring up uh, such an important point that was high on my mind as I read this. So let's say that I have my why. Uh, I understand it. Now I want to up my productivity that there seems like there's a big need though for also in this just self, just basic self-discipline. And you mentioned it, there's email, there's social media. And the thing that has continued to, I guess, gnaw at me is even the things, my work, I, I love my work, all my businesses. I'm, I, I have great sure. care about all of them. And I sit down, have a brilliant idea while I'm out in a run or in the shower or wherever it may be. And I sit down and I have the ability to do what I want to do. It's my, it's my business. I've got autonomy and then I will distract myself. Whether I get a distraction, I will distract myself. I think because just the work is hard. It's still hard. It's brain work. Sure. I mean, it has to check in. I have to think hard. I have to pray for brilliance and, and do my thing. And I can come over here. I have to be self-disciplined. And even in doing some of the work here, like delegating and specifically is a difficult one for me because I have to take the time away from what I view as my desired forward progress and go on a linear tangent to teach somebody something. So I know it will help over here. But for me, it takes a significant amount of self-discipline. So just as we talked about and understanding your why, again, on this message, are you finding that, seeing that as you're teaching this and experiencing it yourself that we've also got to, we can't put that aside. We've got to employ front center. This is going to take some, this is going to take some significant effort. It, it is, but I would say that most people are trying to do too much. They think that the secret to success yeah. is doing more, buying more, consuming more more tasks, more events, more opportunities. Yeah. And that's not the case. The subtitle of the book is Achieve More by Doing Less. The question is, how do you decide what are the things you should be doing and what are the things you can let go of? Yeah. And so I have a tool in the book. I introduce it in chapter two uh, in the Evaluate chapter called the Freedom Compass. Now, the way to think of this is that it's um, basically a two-by-two two matrix, so four different quadrants. And it has on one axis, your passion. Do you love this task or this opportunity or do you not really love it? And then the other axis is proficiency. Are you good at it or you're not good at it? Where we really want to focus and the key where it doesn't take as much discipline is to focus on the task that you were created for, that you were specifically designed to do, yeah. where your passion and your proficiency intersect. And I call that in the book, 
the desire zone. And so for me, that's only three things. There's only three things that I do in my desire zone. Everything else is a candidate for elimination, automation, or delegation. So for me, it's all about creating content, delivering content, or creating a vision for my team. If it's not one of those three areas, that I stay out of it. So one of the things that you find when you're working in your desire zone, it doesn't take that much discipline because it does take some for sure, but you're in flow. You're in that ability where your gifting and your proficiency work together and you actually enjoy doing that work. The opposite end of the spectrum is what I call the drudgery zone. This is where you don't like what you're doing and you're not very good at it, you know, and it just, it sucks. It's a grind. And so those are the first things that you've got to get rid of. Once you start getting rid of those tasks that fit into the drudgery zone, and I've got two other zones in the book too, the disinterest zone and the distraction zone. But once you start either eliminating, automating, or delegating those tasks, you find that you've got a manageable workload. And they're the high leverage things that really move your business forward. And I, I quote Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators in the book, where he said he purposed early in his career that he would never do anything of importance that others could or would do when there was so much of importance to be done that others could not or would not do. And that's really how I approach my work. Is this something that somebody else can do, but if it's in my desire zone, that's where I'm going to stay focused. I'm going to stay in my lane. And that's why, like last year, my company grew 62%, and it's grown you know, 50 to 60% every year. And it's mostly because I stay out of the way of my teammates. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's, let's go right there. This has been, let me take it to a health and a well and wellness, uh, analogy. I, in my time in my own personal experience and in interviewing so many influencers like you leaders and influencers, I have realized that a lot of people view such people as you as having the luxury to pursue health and wellness. And what I found is that generally the reason that you are where you are is because you didn't put it off as a luxury. You did it at the beginning of time to get more energy, to get more out of yourself. So it's a myth somewhat. So in this same way, it sounds like that I can hear people that will discount the message errantly. So, but in saying, okay, it sounds great, Michael, that you have the ability with a team and with the finances of a successful business to eliminate something you don't want to do or to delegate that. But that takes time and money. I can't, you know, there's a lot of folks out there, even in our incredible aspiring audience on the Ziegler show and your audiences as well, that there's still people that may not give a bald faced excuse to it, but they'll say, "I, I hear you. I don't know how, how do I really afford that? What feels like a luxury, even though they hear you, it'll increase things, but they feel stuck and trapped. Talk to that. Okay. So let me give you just a a story out of my own experience. So I come from the big corporate world, you know, for years, I worked 17 years at Thomas Nelson publishers, most recently as the CEO and the chairman of the company. Um, I was in that role for six years before we sold the company to HarperCollins. So in that role, I had two full-time executive assistants, hot and cold, running people that reported to me, you know, 650 people that reported to me. And that was easy. And then I left in 2011 when we sold the company to become, you know, an author and a speaker. So now all of a sudden, I'm a solopreneur. I have no help. I don't know how to find the FedEx box. I'm managing my inbox. I'm booking my travel tickets. I'm doing it all. And I was overwhelmed. And what I found was that people didn't pay me to manage my email inbox. They didn't pay me to book my calendar. They didn't pay me to book my travel. None of that stuff. And yet, 
I knew that I couldn't grow the company unless I could learn how to scale myself. I had to be able to get my time back. So what I did, and this is, this always requires an investment, you know, investing yeah. in your health, you use that example. Yeah. It's an investment before you see the rewards, right? Same thing in a relationship. You got to invest in the relationship before you're going to see the reward of intimacy. Same thing is true in work. So what I did was I hired an executive assistant for five hours a week because I just didn't, I didn't really want to go out on a limb any further than that. I also had all the same excuses that most solopreneurs have where they say to themselves things like this. Um, it takes me longer to explain how to do this than to just do it myself. Mm-hmm. Another conversation they often have is they say, if I want it done right, I've got to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think I can afford it. You know, it's a third thing that people say. So I said, forget all that. Yes, it does take longer the first time I explain it. But man, if I can get that off my plate, I never have to think about it again. And I can go on to do the things that I can bill for and actually make money for. So I had this assistant for five hours a week that lasted about two weeks. Then I bumped her up to 10 hours a week and then 20 hours a week. And that freed me up to do the income generating activities, the revenue producing activities that actually made my business grow. Now, let me just give you another way to think about this. I said to one of my clients one time who was, he was saying, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at web development. You know, I'm an okay developer, but it's not my highest and best use. And I said, well, how much do you make an hour? And at the time he was making, I think about a hundred thousand dollars, um, uh, an hour, or excuse me, a year, an hour. That'd be awesome. That would be. Uh, a hundred thousand dollars a year. No, I think he was making twice that $200,000 a year, but at any rate, it came out to about a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred dollars uh, an hour was what his rate was. I said, well, how much would it cost you to hire a, you know, a Cracker Jack WordPress developer? He said, probably about $50 an hour. I said, really $50 an hour. You could, you could get a decent developer. And he said, absolutely. I could get a really good developer for that. And I said, well, why do you continue to pay, you know, a halfway good developer $100 an hour? Because that's exactly what you're doing. You're paying yourself essentially $100 an hour to do work that is substandard. Yeah. Well, you could hire somebody and free yourself up to go make $100 an hour. You come out ahead $50 an hour. So the light bulb went off and he said, oh, okay, I get it. So that's, I think that's how you have to think if you're going to grow. Well, yeah, that, you know, I have recently been humbled in that arena somewhat of thinking I was good at something. Uh, I get billed as the marketing and sales guy, and I have to admit that marketing and sales is, you know, a mile wide and I'm good at a couple of areas and I'm a great communicator when we have an hour to talk like this, when it comes to a five second split decision on a website, I'm just not that good. And, and I, I've got to admit that one and then delegate that. But coming back to what you said, it's going to take me the time to explain this to somebody. And are they going to do as good a job as I do? And I think that's gotta be uh, in an entrepreneur's dilemma in general, maybe more so with different personality styles. This been a big bane in my own existence, Michael, admittedly. And that's where I said your book, it, 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 it fluttered me in a couple spots because I still gravitate towards that. And you know what? And on that, I, I thought, you know, I put you on the spot. Okay. You wrote the book, you're the master, but even the masters still have areas they haven't mastered. Sure. Even now you talked about becoming the solopreneur back then, hiring an assistant going on today. You have a big team, you've grown in, exponentially, but I'm assuming there's still some areas. Where are the hot spots? If you look at this book, where are the hot spots that you still struggle with and tend to gravitate towards? You have to pull yourself back out. Yeah, I know better than that. Yeah, well, the biggest uh, the biggest challenge I face is the shiny object syndrome mm-hmm. because I love novelty 
you know, on the Colby index, I'm not sure, sure if you're familiar with that uh, particular personality test, but it's very helpful in a, in a business context to match people to the work that they're going to be doing. It talks about how you initiate work, but long story short is I'm a quick start. So it means I, I don't have a long attention span and I, I get easily distracted, but I start fast, right? You know, my motto in life is ready, fire, aim. Yeah. And so, you know, I just want to get in action to get, and get something done. But I realized about three weeks ago, I woke up and I said, I am spending way too much time on my smartphone. What I need is a dumb phone. I need to dumb this thing down because this is just a, a very elaborate distraction device. Yeah. It's constantly uh, manipulating my dopamine levels, causing me to look at it, which reinforces the dopamine and that whole cycle of things. So I took my very expensive iPhone XS Max, which I paid over $1,000 for, and I took email, Slack, all social media off of it. I'm almost to the point where it's hardly worth carrying because it's only there for phone calls from my family, which I, very, I get very few phone calls from my family. Usually we're texting each other, but that's it. But oh my, my productivity has skyrocketed. The challenge for me though now is to not to try not to circumvent the system that I've created. So now I find myself on my Mac when I'm working. I think, well, I'll just bounce over here and check social media. But this is where, thankfully, we can use technology to fight technology. So I use a program called Freedom, and you can find out more at freedom.to. I have no affiliate relationship with them. I just am a happy user of the product. But I can go into a session and and, and block websites and apps for whatever determined time I want to. So if I got three hours worth of work and I'm trying to write, then I can block those apps. And the only way I can get to them is to completely reboot my Mac. And it's just enough friction that I stop and go, oh yeah, I'm trying to write. I'm not going to do that. And it breaks that dopamine cycle. That is wonderful. I I have recently done the same thing on my new expensive iPhone. And the only thing I've got to turn to now is my new King James version Bible and Psalms. And I figure I I need that more than anything, uh, any dopamine hit. And thanks to these sponsors for bringing us today's show. Well, so I, you know, I talked earlier and mentioned, and I know you're the same way all of your work, you have a lot of passion about, and you talk about that word. And of course we wear that word out in the personal development world and business development world. But, um, I'm grateful and believe in having passion in my work. Uh, however, I love how you brilliantly caveat that somewhat and say, okay, passion's one thing, but are you proficient? And I won't give away the punchline there because I had never seen it put that way. Uh, school us on your perspective on marrying those two together. Yeah. So if you love something and are really, you know, uh, you just enjoy doing it, but you're not any good at it, what you probably have is a hobby, mm-hmm. right? And so even if you're good at it, even if you love it and you're good at it, but it doesn't produce results that people will pay for. And that's really how I define proficiency. You've got to be able to generate results that people pay for. You're not really proficient. And so, for example, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Your, your parents live here, so you're very familiar with it. Yeah. But in Nashville, we have tons of musicians that love to sing or love to play the banjo or the guitar or whatever it is. And they're really, really good. Amazing. Problem is, They can't get a gig. They can't get employed. These people are waiting tables. They're working as clerks, you know, in in retail stores. Nothing wrong with that. But they're not proficient in the way that I define it. So that's still a hobby. 
And a lot of those people wake up and realize that they probably should have invested some time in a career where they could find what they were really proficient at, where people were willing to pay them. So you've got to have both those things, passion, but proficiency as defined by the willingness of somebody to pay you for the results that you can deliver. Yeah. I mean, isn't that the age old perspective where we look at the the great artists that can't get their art out there. They can't sell it. Therefore right. it's not doing anybody any good. And then we get irritated when the lesser skilled, abled artist does get their stuff out there. And we, uh, you know, throw our stones that way, but the other guy's not getting it out there. Um, that's again, why I really appreciated that perspective of a passion is awesome. Passion and something you're brilliant at is awesome, but you've got to be proficient. And again, that's where it speaks to me. I feel like I'm in there. I'm passionate about some things. I'm really good at some things, but I'm not getting enough of the work out there because I'm letting so much of this come in. So you separate the book into three areas, stop, cut, and act. And as I looked over that, even my original review, I thought, here again, in this personal development demographic uh, industry that we work in, we spend a lot of time talking about taking action about delivering your art, right. as, as Seth Godin would say. Uh, but do we count the cost? And I look back over my history and there's a lot of times I did not count the cost. I added things without subtracting them. And I thought when you look at that stop, cut and act, do you see, is that, is that ring true that we tend to take action, but it's those first two stop and cut, stop taking in, you know, under understanding, being present, what are we really going after? And then cutting things. Is that our primary downfall? And again, I'm speaking to this demographic that we're in, not the general masses overall, but even in this yeah. personal development, aspiring demographic, is that where we, well, I know it's, it's where I tend to, to miss it. Yeah, I, th I think it's true for all of us. You know, reflection as a discipline is not highly esteemed in our culture. You know, we may give lip service to it, but people, especially in our demographic, are go, 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 act, 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 act. And the first place uh, to start is to stop. And that's why I talk about in those three chapters in that section of the book, I talk about formulating a productivity vision, evaluating where you are, and then rejuvenation. You know, one of the things that impacts your productivity more than probably any other single factor is the amount of rest you get. If you're tired, you're not going to be focused. You're not going to be productive. And all the science, which I include in the book, backs that up. Because productivity, in a sense, is really not about time management. It's about energy management. And when you've got adequate rest, when you're fueled with, you know, world-class nutrition, when you're moving and exercising you're bringing to it something that, that other people who aren't in that state are not bringing to it. So that's why you got to stop first. Then to cut, you got to get rid of what you don't want to make room for what you do want. And that's what the cutting is all about. You know, what are those activities that are in each of those three zones I mentioned? First of all, your drudgery zone, the things you hate, the things you're not good at. Then in your disinterest zone, the things you don't really love, but you're good at, so you keep doing it. Maybe they're bringing in the, you know, the, the revenue. And then the distraction zone, which is kind of the hobby area where, or, or social media area where, you know, I, 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 you know I'm, I'm not very good at it, but I just love doing it. And so when you get rid of all those three things through elimination, automation, or delegation, now you're ready to act. You put yourself in a position where you're refreshed, you're rejuvenated, you have a clear vision, you know exactly where you're starting from. You've gotten rid of all the excess baggage. Now you're really ready to execute and move ahead of the pack. And that's kind of, that's how the book's organized. 
I like that quote or that statement. Productivity management is energy management. Absolutely. And on sleep, matter of fact, I'm just ordering my aura ring. Have you heard of those things? I have one. Do you really? Okay. I do. All right. Well, uh, I I may interview Harpreet, the CEO of that. I'm looking at that, but I'm stuck on sleep. Uh, And in our, in the medical practice I'm partnered with, that is such a focus. And I love that thing on monitoring because the enemy of, Mm -hmm. we don't know what we don't know. And I think I slept well, but did I? And well, you know, I don't. So I'm getting one. Um, it's, it's awesome because it not only tells you how long you slept, but it tells you the quality of your yeah. sleep and it gives you a readiness score every day based on how you slept, the exercise you got the previous day and so forth. Uh-huh. And, uh, it's, it's very helpful. Okay. What, well, what you monitor and measure, you can improve. We'll talk more about that in the next show, the habit show with you on sleep. We'll okay, that. good. Okay. Well, you talked about it's, and you, you mentioned drudgery a couple of times. And I, I do give myself credit for finances as my absolute drudgery. And it's the place I have delegated the most in my life. A new company we have first hire was a CFO uh, right at the top to, mm. to nail that out there. Excellent. But you talking about cutting, I, I want to talk on that because when I look at, uh, at, at stopping, you know, being present, where are you, where are you going? Okay. I, I, I get that. Uh, and then on acting. Okay. I, we speak a lot to that, but it's this stop issue that I feel like seems to be such a consistent handicap, not in my, uh, not even in my own life, but, but in others as well. And I wonder if it's part of this again, I, I speak to, we are, I, I speak to the, the personal development industry and we're in this arena. I mean, I was born and raised on how to win friends and influence people and PR skills. And I learned to say a lot of yeses and to try to be Superman to fulfill that. And now coming back to what you say is saying no, make that flex. You actually say flex your no muscle. That is so difficult. That one feels bad. And when I look at that, I wonder, are we really, are we often looking, having to address deeper issues? Bottom line, where I'm having to address my self image and my people pleasing in this. I can't, it's not just as simple as, okay, take action, make a plan, set your goals and go forward. I have to say no to people. I have to say no to these really good things. We know that old adage, say no to the good to, to make room for the great. That is so difficult because it seems like it so often brings in some deeper roots or is it just me? It's not just you. It's everybody. You know, I'm a recovering people pleaser myself (laughs) and, and it, it's always a challenge, but, but then I realized and I talk about this in the book that, um, you know, our time is basically a zero sum game. You know, time is the one resource you can't make more of. So if I decide, for example, that I'm going to take a breakfast meeting in in the morning with somebody that asked to quote, pick my brain, then that means I don't get to go work out. And if I don't get to go work out, and I'm not taking care of myself, and I do that too often, and it becomes a pattern, my energy is going to suffer, my health is going to suffer, and everybody's spending an inordinate amount of time trying to rectify something that could have been handled if I was just getting to the gym on a regular uh, basis. So there's always a trade-off. And so one of the things I've learned to do is to ask myself, if I'm going to say yes to this, what am I going to say no to? And my assistant is brutal with this. So I've given him permission to ask me that question. So I'll say, hey, Jim, you know, I want to do X. And he says, great. What are you going to say no to? In other words, what are we going to remove from your calendar? Because you can't just keep filling the calendar up, hoping that you're going to get to it all. And Kevin, one of the things that I've found is enormously helpful is to, is to embrace constraints. Embrace constraints. For example, I leave the office Every day at 6 p.m. 
So I get into the office at nine and I leave at six. I don't work in the evenings and I don't work on the weekends except for very rare circumstances. Let me tell you what that does to me. If, for example, and for years, I didn't do that. For years, I would just say, I would leave the office. I'd be working on something at three o'clock in the afternoon and say, you know, if I don't get done with that, it's fine. You know, I can go home, have supper, open my laptop and continue working, right? right? But if I don't give myself that option, if I embrace that constraint at 6 p.m. and literally the I use automated lighting in my office, my lights go out at 6 p.m. So I'm standing in the dark if I'm continuing to work. But what happens is because I know that there's a deadline, there's a hard, fast boundary, then at three o'clock, I'm not tempted to go to social media. I'm not tempted to chit chat with people. I'm saying, no, I got to get this done by 6 p.m. because the lights go out and I'm on my way home. So that kind of constraint gives me freedom and forces me to be productive. Same thing on the weekend. I mean, you probably have experienced this before when you go on a vacation, that Friday before you leave on a one-week vacation, you're Superman, uh right? You get so much done. Why? Because you have a constraint. And the same thing is true on our time if we manage it that way is embrace embrace the constraint and set for ourselves hard boundaries that we don't transgress. Okay. Embracing constraints. I, I, so again, we're back to that self-discipline aspect of we're going to have to manage ourselves, but I like putting in those self-imposed boundaries to some degree, which again is so difficult. I came into entrepreneurship or I've remained in it. I don't know anything different, but I've remained in it because I don't want constraints. I want spontaneity. I want to do that. And then my first executive assistant said, can you just, she said, Kevin, do you have a routine? I know you don't like all these words of rules and boundaries, whatever. Do you have a routine? Do you ever forget to brush your teeth? I said, no. She said, do you ever forget your coffee? Of course not. Would you just do the podcast on the same day every week? That's all just produce. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. But it's that thing that I have to put in there that I almost went into this deal because I didn't want this constraints, but I like that embracing the constraints, upping our proficiency. I mean, when you look, if you take a cross section, Michael, just at, again, the audiences that you speak to, that you write to, I know you're not speaking to everyone. You're speaking to a certain amount, but is it too simplistic to, as we look at this area of focus to say, I'm going to ask you, what is, is the primary enemy just taking on too much? Because I would assume that most of us are in an area that hopefully we're proficient in. Hopefully we do have some passion in, obviously those are big red flags if we don't, but if we're in there, what is this that runs us aground that keeps us from getting more of our art out? Uh, as we talked about earlier, is it that aspect of, we just want to take on more and we don't count the cost. Is that too, sim- is that a too simplistic as a, as a primary enemy? I think that's part of it, but I would say that the first and foundational problem is that we don't have clarity about what we want. Okay. Okay. okay so because we don't have clarity, we're just kind of pursuing this sort of um, ambiguous and amorphous sense of more okay. without clarity about what we really want. Andy Andrews has a great quote that I love. And he says that discipline is this. Can you make yourself do something you don't want to do for the sake of something you really want? So, for example, I do not like exercising. I don't like lifting weights. I don't like running. But I do it five days a week. Why? Because I don't like a heart attack. You know, I don't like cancer. I don't like being out sick. You know, I like those things a lot less. So what do I really want? I want optimal health. I want to be energized. I want to be able to bring the best version of me to my work. 
And that requires that I work out. So it's not that I, I uh, enjoy this thing, this discipline thing. It's that I've just learned how to make myself do something I don't want to do for the sake of something I really want. But if we don't have clarity about what we want, then we're not going to be able to find the discipline. It goes back to something you said earlier about finding our why, something that's, that Simon Sinek talks about, finding our why. But I'm going to tell you, I think even before the why comes the what. What do you want, number one? Why do you want it, number two? If you know those two things, you're going to find the discipline. You're going to find the strategies. You're going to find the appropriate and relevant hacks uh, to help you get there. Okay. And on that, finding that what, do would you also say that most of the time, most, uh, that a lot of times our what's are not defined enough? You said totally. that before. Okay. And you've got, I mean, you've got resources on that as well. Go ahead. I do. So I wrote a book with Daniel Harkavy called Living Forward, mm-hmm. and it's all about how to create a life plan. Yeah. And so that's getting clarity on that, you know, uh, 35,000 view, foot view of your life where you're looking out 10 to 25 years. Then I wrote a book last year called Your Best Year Ever. And that's all about setting annual goals and quarterly goals. And free to focus, this book is really about how do you execute against what you want. If you know what you want, then here's how to get it. This is the execution component of it. And I got to get one of the actual hard copies there. I heard my dad's got a forward or got a, got a testimonial in there, I think. Uh, so I'll have he to, does. Okay. Yeah, he did. He, he was gracious enough to do an endorsement. I'll have to pick up uh, one of the actual ones there. So in this, one of the core issues that we seem to be coming up against with all the people like you, these influencers, leaders out here is this issue of, we have our game plan set out. We're being proficient. We're, we understand, again, I'll go back to the mechanics. I like that word, the mechanics of it. We get the, the, the letter of the law, in essence, but not mm-hmm. the spirit so much, or we fall awry because of that. And you talk about limiting beliefs. You actually list out seven. And we don't have to go through all those because, folks, that's why you need to go buy the book. Uh, but when you look at those limiting beliefs, they were all profound to me. But I wanted to ask you again, as you, if you have to paint a broad brush, are there in our demographic, this, this, this aspiring group is what I'm going to call them, are there some that tend to float to the top for you? Again, these are aspiring yeah, say, people. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah I, would say, I would say the biggest one is, is the limiting belief that I don't have time. And I hear that all the time. You know, people say, I don't have time. And it's just, it, first of all, it's not honest. You know, and I've caught myself saying it and have to stop myself. Truth is, I've got time for whatever I want. We've never lived in an age where we have more discretion over our time. And particularly for those of us who live in the West and live in the United States of America, we have choices. You know, we may think we don't, but again, that's a limiting belief. You know, maybe you're in a job with a demanding boss. Well, he's probably not holding a gun to your head. You know, you've chosen to be in that. I don't want to minimize the challenges that people are in, but we have to realize, and I love what Andy Stanley says, that every problem we've ever created, every challenge we ever face, we're there. You know, we bring ourselves into that situation. We got ourselves into that situation. So I think the idea that we don't have time is really an issue where we may not have the discipline to say no, and we may not have the discipline to say no because we're not clear about what we want. Because the other side of every no is a yes. And so I don't even think of it about what I'm saying no to. I think about what I'm saying yes to. So, for example, if somebody asks me um, uh, to take me to dinner, and I get this all the time. People are coming through town. They say, can we go to dinner? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's very rare for me to say yes to that. 
Because the bigger yes that I want to say yes to is my time with Gail or my time with my kids or my close friends, not some random stranger that I'll see once and never see again. You know, there's a cost. There's an opportunity cost in that. And so I think we've got to be honest about what we have time for. We've got time for anything we want. In fact, I like the way Greg McEwen says it in Essentialism, and I quote him in the book, where he says, um, you don't have time, or you have time for anything you want, you just don't have time for everything you want. And that's the way we've got to look at it. Yes. Yeah. He was profound. And folks, as you hear that, I don't know what show number it is, but uh, I think it was in 2018 at some point we interviewed Greg. You know, I got to say, I'll testify to him. He has probably been mentioned by more of my uh, guests since then than anyone else on there. He has, uh, I believe it. He is, he has been significant. I think him and then uh, another guy I know you know well is Donald Miller. Uh, yeah. As, as being, as being Good significant. Friend. So when you, look at, I was going to, maybe you just said it. It's, it's that, that I don't have time because I know anybody, when you've got something that is your focal point, your current filter, we have, I think it's actually got a name for it, reticular activator. It's a, you know, if if you're going to buy a Honda, all of a sudden you see Hondas everywhere. They were there before you just didn't see them that in this. So as you're filtering in this aspect of focus has come out and you have, worked it out in your own life. You've been working it out with your team. You've now, now you're putting out in the book and I'm sure you're speaking in front of people and you're giving this message out. Are there some responses that you have gotten back that have even broadened your scope of this? Maybe, maybe responses you weren't looking for. I don't know if you'd call them surprise responses from that, or have they all been pretty typical of that same thing? It's we're, we're all pretty, pretty even on coming back with the same responses. I, I think, well, you have to understand that this book began as a course, and it was a course that was online that we sold to over 10,000 people that walked through the course, and then I did it as, as a live event. We taught it over the last three years, twice a year over the last three years, so I was teaching in front of a live audience where I was getting real-life questions from the audience, interaction from my students, and so they definitely fell you know, within a certain finite scope of, mm-hmm. of questions, and those are what I used to address the book. So the book, you know, just wasn't theory, but it came out of a lot of interaction with clients. And uh, so I, I would say the responses have been pretty typical. I mean, all of us struggle with the same basic issue. We all have 168 hours a week. People that I deal with, my clients are, are trying to both win at work and succeed at life. Mm-hmm. You know, they want that, they want that, uh, they're on that quest for, for life balance. And there's a lot of people, there's a lot of uh, forces in our culture that will tell you, you know what, if you really want to be successful, you got to buy into what I call the hustle fallacy, where you've got to essentially back burner your health, back burner your family for a season, and just pursue your work with all you've got. And, and Elon Musk has become kind of the poster child of this. Yeah. And frankly, you know, as much as he's accomplished, I wouldn't want his life. I'm not trying to judge him. I'm just saying that he made some choices that I wouldn't want to make. But on the other hand, we find people who value their families, and they put on what I call the ambition break. So they're saying, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to throttle back my ambition so that I can preserve my health, preserve my family. Well, I think there's a third alternative, and that's what I call the double win. And that's where, because of constraints, because of learning to say no, because of, of getting clarity about what you want, you can win at work and succeed at life, but it takes some intention. And it takes knowing your why and it takes some discipline. 
that right there, Michael, that's mine. Preserving my family. That was my self-inflicted handicap to my success mm-hmm. in the business world for a long time. Uh, and it took, uh, it took a hard crucible to, uh, awaken me from that. You know, we've, we've used health and wellness a couple of times as an analogy, and that's one where in ignoring our own responsibilities in health and wellness, we're seeing the consequences, chronic illness and disease. I mean, this is the, this is a world that I spend a lot of time in and I just had to put together an investor slide deck and do all my, uh, do all my numbers and points on where chronic illnesses and disease is and what the consequences mm. are. So on that same light though, th- what you're talking about here, it just, it seems it, this is not just another book. Um, and, and I don't say this to flatter you. I mean, this issue right here, I am seeing it. The consequences are, are significant. And from your yeah. standpoint in writing this, as we are, we know we're inundated with more and more information, more and more media, more and more distractions that right now. So here I am working the numbers on chronic illness and disease. These things add up. This is a tangible mm-hmm. Uh, consequence that we can look at. I don't know. I think we're coming out with some of the consequences. We talked about Simon Sinek, you know, and he's got some uh, pretty, uh, he's wringing his, his, his neck right now on his angst about social media, the dopamine hits like you talked about. Overall, here we are again, this aspiring group. We want to do well. We really do. We want to help people. We have skills, we have abilities, we have opportunity. And yet, I'm going to ask you to speak to kind of the negative side as positive as we want to be here. What the negative side, what are the consequences that you're seeing and that you would project are going to happen culturally uh, speak to that. And well, just, just speak that. I mean, that's going to speak to us individually. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, I think because we don't have constraints yeah. because our attention span is being systematically destroyed by multi multi-billion dollar media companies whose business model is to collect and control our attention and sell it to advertisers. Mm -hmm. And they are employing the world's best psychologists. They understand brain science. They understand dopamine. They know exactly what they're doing. And I don't think it's even an evil intention. You know, they're, they're just trying to make their business model work, right? The problem is it's a total war with our own self-satisfaction, self-care, our own contribution to the world. And what I fear and what I find is uh, so many people that are overwhelmed by all the demands. And the problem is that there's these invisible time bandits in the form of social media, text messages, um, you know, all the emails that we get, everything we're trying to manage. And all that stuff keeps us from doing the few things, the few things that are really important, the things that are important in our health, things that are important in our family life, and the things that are important in our work. So there's the overwhelm, and I think the decreased attention span is really what I worry about, the the people's inability to focus. I mean, this is, I mean, the title of the book is Free to Focus. For us to be free to focus, for us to deliver our best work, for us to be fully present with the people that we love, that requires that we get control of our concentration and, and, and our attention and get it focused on what matters most. And... If we don't do that as a culture, I fear for the next generation. People are not going to be able to do what Cal Newport calls deep work. You know, the kind of work that's the creative work, that's the meaningful work, that's the problem-solving work. We're raising a generation of people that can't focus for more than three minutes at a time, sometimes for not, not more than 90 seconds at a time. You're not going to solve major problems. You're not going to create major works of art 
or major solutions if you do that. And there's, by the way, a reason that most of the Silicon Valley executives do not allow their kids to be controlled by devices or participate in social media. They know the score and they know what's at stake. Yes. Uh, so that is, you know, when you talk about the culture, I mean, there's a majority of us uh, listeners that have businesses that are, that are running a business, they're promoting a business and what you're talking about there, you know, going back to what I talked about at the beginning of the show of my own ability to master grabbing someone's attention in the five seconds that we have. This is what I've been studying our buddy Donald, Donald Miller again with his five minute marketing makeover that I want everybody to go check out for your business. But you're talking about the cultural consequences of that affect our businesses because it is so difficult to get people's attention. Uh, no matter if you're selling a, a hundred dollar bill for a dollar, if you can't get their attention, it doesn't matter. I mean, this is, this is changing the marketplace as we know it. It is. I mean, we're systematically as a culture rewiring our brains. Yeah. You know, you know, you heard the say probably from the brain scientists, but neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm -hmm. And if you engage in a, in an addictive behavior behavior, and you're getting a dopamine reward, which is a very small, uh, simple neurochemical that is rewarding you, giving you a small sense of pleasure. And you do that enough times and it becomes a habit. And I think we've all seen this where, you know, the average person is checking their smartphone, you know, over a hundred times a day, sometimes 200, 300 times a day. Every time they get bored, they don't, they don't learn to develop again, what Cal Newport calls frustration tolerance, mm -hmm. where I can stay engaged in a deep problem without feeling the need to take a break and go check social media. We're losing this as a culture, but here's the good news for people that can learn this who can become truly free to focus and cultivate that as a lifestyle, those people are going to have an edge against everybody else who's systematically training themselves to be distracted. The people that can focus are the people that are going to get ahead. They're the people that are going to make money. They're going to be the people that, again, can win at work and succeed at life, both. I, on that, on it reminds me of the message that I got that I wish I could give credit to. I don't know who brought it to my attention, but it was the benefit of allowing your kids to be bored uh, has yes. changed some of the decisions that we have made in our home. And so now when the kid comes and says, daddy, I'm bored. It's awesome, buddy. That is, you are training your brain <laughs> back to what you said, but I had to have that message brought to me. Not that we were letting them just spend every moment on those devices, but I forget that as well. And didn't know the yeah. brain training beside behind the benefit of boredom even. Well, I, Gail and I were out, my wife and I, Gail, were out at uh, dinner yesterday after church, and there was a couple right next to us, and they had probably a 10 or 11-year-old daughter who was on an iPad. The adults were having a conversation, and the kid was on the iPad the entire time, never looked up, never conversed, never talked with anybody. What, one book that's really had a profound impact on me that I've just read is Digital Minimalism by Cal okay. Newport. Okay. And Cal says one of the things that happens is when our faces and our are in our devices, these kids are not learning the social skills. They're not learning to, to read the nuances of facial expressions and to be able to be emotionally intelligent. And all that stuff's going to put them at a disadvantage as they grow up. The kids that aren't in the devices that have learned to deal with boredom and be productive, they're going to have the advantage. So I just want to make sure my kids, my grandkids now are getting that. Yeah. I don't know about you. I'm sure it was true with your, your parents, but if I came in and said to my parents, I'm bored, I mean, we just laughed. You know, that's your issue, buddy. Get out of here. Yeah. 
No, I got assigned a chore. You got time to sweep the floor, buddy. That's great. <laughs> That's, That's right. wonderful. Or they make me listen to, God forbid, a Zig Ziglar tape, uh, you know, and get an attitude adjustment. <laughs> um, okay. So I want, I want to end here. You just talked about, you've talked about, obviously the, we've been uh, espousing the benefits of having focus, the productivity increase, the getting our, our art out there. And we've talked about here with kids and what we see with the, the benefits and the negatives. And I do want to ask, as we talked about just the cultural consequences, again, now speak to the individual business owner, somebody who's out there in the audience listening right now, who's striving to start a business. They want to do more. Again, they want to do good. They have ability, they have opportunity. And yet without in not, uh, coming under this message of focus, and, and increasing their productivity. What are the primary consequences you are seeing? And I know it's happening right in your life. You've got dear friends, even that this you're seeing this happen to, sure. and they are uh, getting the consequences. Just like we talked about with health and wellness, the, the consequences there are easy, it's, you know, diabetes and heart disease and a heart attack and whatnot, that what are the primary highlight consequences that you're seeing from all of us who are not embracing this message? One of the things that happens in organizations is when people don't have focus, first of all, they need clarity around a, a common vision. They need to be aligned around that vision. But unless that happens and unless they're focusing as an organization, then what happens is you get a lot of fake work. Okay. People who are busy, but who are not really advancing the objectives and the goals of the organization. And what that does as a business owner is you've got people coming to you who are overwhelmed, who are frustrated and who ask for more resources. They wanna hire more contractors, they wanna bring on more employees, they feel overwhelmed, but the real issue is not that they have more work that they can do. What they haven't learned to do is to filter that work and say, what's the 20% of the work that drives 80% of the results, the old Pareto principle? Because not all work is created equal. And when you learn to focus, you, get, you learn to focus on the stuff that's the high leverage stuff that really advances the organization. You know, that's why my team, frankly, has been able to grow as fast as it has because we don't have fake work. We don't have sideways energy going on. We've learned to focus as a team. And that's really one of the promises of the book, Free to Focus. Well, I appreciate that. It reminds me back to Covey's urgent and important graph that I was yes. shown so long ago. And here we are worse off than ever. So he gave us the knowledge, but now you are giving us a methodology to walk it out. Mike, I just appreciate you putting this out. Uh, this is one of those interviews. I, well, like all of yours, that's why you're here for the third time, because I feel like I just well, got a you. free coaching session. Uh, so I appreciate it. I hope everyone else benefits half as much as I am from it because I need to take this. I need to study it. And I hope everybody does go out and get the book. Thanks again, just for taking your time and for Absolutely. doing your smart work so that we can get this message, Michael. Man, thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. Well, friends, this message is just a big deal. I'm really honing in on what I can cut, automate, delegate, or eliminate. That is the key for my own personal increasing success. Go find out more. Check out the new book, Free to Focus, at michaelhyatt.com or, of course, wherever you buy books. Well, coming up next in show 668 is our Q&A show, and I have a special guest. Look, having confidence in yourself and faith and support from others is just priceless and valuable, obviously. Yet there's also something sweet about achieving something others didn't think you could do. Maybe you weren't so sure either, or maybe you absolutely knew you could do it. Either way, the greatest stories are made from those seemingly stupid ideas that worked. 
and might have worked like magic. Many of ours today have. What Richie Norton helped us understand in show 663 is that for any new idea to truly have value and be viable, it must by proxy be stupid in that it should be very or at least fairly different than anything that already exists. If that's the same, if your idea is the same as something that already exists and it's reasonable, how can it really be invaluable? Thus, I ask this question on Facebook. Who has achieved something others didn't think was possible or a wise move and you proved them wrong? Uh, and also rephrased it this way too. What is a business or life idea you've had that you or someone else thought or thinks might be a stupid idea? Well, so many great, fun, inspiring responses, of course. And check it out. I had Richie join me to talk through the comments. So hope you can be with us. Till then, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together. 